We will read from three passages of Scripture, beginning in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. As we continue the gospel account of our Lord's Passion Week, we come to Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in order to get the full picture, we're going to read three of the gospel accounts, each of which gives us different details. So we we will begin with Matthew and then turn to John, and then thirdly come to our text in Luke. So we start with Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now we turn to John's account of the same events, found in John 18. And we will read verses 1 through 11. John 18, verses 1 through 11. Here you'll notice that John's account is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John records some details that the other three do not. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he, and Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, 
Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Now we turn to our text in Luke 22. And read Luke's account of these events. Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. Again, Luke here is the briefest. Understandably, he was the one who wasn't there. Luke 22, 47 through 53. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priest and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We read the scriptures thus far. The word of God transports us back to the garden of Gethsemane. Deep into the night, Jesus has just emerged triumphant from that trying hour of intense agony. Strengthened his human heart, mind, and will by his Father through prayer and through the assistance of the angel sent to minister to him, Jesus has arisen from his prayer. No longer face down upon the ground, Jesus stands. Not that the dread or the sorrow has passed, for Jesus knows full well, as John's gospel said, Jesus knows full well all that would come upon him. But strengthened by the Father, our Lord, the suffering Savior, the obedient servant of Jehovah, now with renewed calm goes forward to finish the work the Father gave him to perform. Having arisen from prayer, Jesus returns to his disciples and rouses them from their sleep. And his, his words, as recorded by Matthew, have a hint of irony in them. Sleep now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. All of the passages we just read began while Jesus yet spoke. 
while Jesus yet spoke those words, the quiet of the night was disturbed by the shuffle of many feet, the murmuring of many hushed voices. And in the darkness of Gethsemane, there shone the light of many torches and many oil lamps fixed on the ends of staves as a large multitude spilled into the garden of Gethsemane. A band of men approaches Jesus and his recently awakened disciples. band of men, one purpose, the arrest of the Son of God. And at the head of that band, None other than Judas himself, which our text again mentions as having been one of the twelve, the betrayer. And as this band comes close to Jesus, his disciples, Jesus reaches out and takes the cup. The cup. Cup, the wrath of God against your sins and mine. The cup that had pressed out of him that bloody sweat in the garden. He reaches out to take the cup. And he does that by willingly giving himself into the hands of this band of sinners to be taken, to be tried, and the next morning to be crucified. On Calvary. Jesus takes the cup. He gives himself to be bound. That he might free us from our sins. To suffer innumerable reproaches. That we may never be confounded. He gives himself to be innocently condemned to death. That we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He gives himself over into the hands of sinners. To suffer his blessed body. To be nailed to the tree. That he might fix thereon the handwriting of our sins. The last words of the text describe what this is as Jesus takes the cup. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The wonderful gospel light that shines in this hour of darkness is that in the hour of seeming defeat, Jesus goes forward to victory and our salvation. And the triumph of Jesus in that most trying hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, that triumph is carried forward even as he delivers himself into the hands of his enemies. And that triumph will be manifest in the days ahead through the cross, through the tomb, victory. So let us look at the arrest of our Lord and its gospel significance. We take The last words of our text, Jesus' words in verse 53 as our theme. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's look at that hour. In that hour, let us see in the first place that treachery was fulfilled. Secondly, that in that hour there was willing self-surrender. Finally, that that hour was sovereignly appointed by God. Judas was busy that night while Jesus prayed and was in agony in Gethsemane. Having been dismissed from the Lord's Lord's presence 
and the Passover feast, Judas had scurried to the chief priests. And Judas had gained from the chief priests a band of men and was on a mission to capture Jesus. And it is this night in Gethsemane that treachery was fulfilled. The greatest treachery, the betrayal of the Son of God by one of the twelve. Treachery by one who professed to be the Lord's familiar friend. And that treachery, that treacherous covenant that Judas had made third or Wednesday morning, he now puts his finishing touches on as he leads that band of men to Jesus and he fulfills his treachery with a kiss. Luke 22, verse 47. Behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto, Judah, unto Jesus to kiss him. Judas comes at the hand of a lo- or at the head of a large band of all sorts of people, and the gospel accounts tell us different details about this band. Matthew twenty six verse forty seven says it was a great multitude armed with swords and staves, and that it had been sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. John 18 verse 3 tells us that Judas had received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And so that tells us all of the Jewish leaders were involved. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, all of them were behind this nighttime arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they sent a large band of men, consisting likely of the temple police, They would have been armed with those staves. That was the standard weapon that the temple police were armed with. The officers and the captains of the temple that were mentioned here. It's possible even that there were some Roman soldiers that accompanied the band. Perhaps the chief priests had petitioned the Roman authorities for a small group of soldiers to help them capture some troublemaker. Whatever the case may be, a large band of men enters the garden that night. And now Luke omits what Matthew tells us, namely that Judas had told the band of men following him that he would identify to them who Jesus was. He would give them a sign, and the sign that Judas had chosen was a kiss. Verse 48 of Matthew 26, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he, hold him fast. You can understand why such a sign was needed. It was dark. Perhaps some of the people in the band did not know who Jesus was. And even if they did know, distinguishing who was who in the dark night and in the flicker of torchlight would have been difficult. Judas wanted to make sure that all of the men in the band could target their quarry, Jesus himself. And so there was a sign. It would be a kiss. And so the band comes. And halts a little ways away from Jesus and his disciples. It's then that Judas steps forward. Text says he drew near. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Aren't those words chilling? Drew near. As a familiar friend would draw near. He drew near to kiss Jesus, a kiss which is an expression of close friendship, of love, of affection. But Judas is drawing near and his kiss was exactly the opposite. 
He comes to Jesus, Hail, Master, greetings, Master, and kissed Him. Matthew 26, verse 49 says, But that kiss was a kiss of betrayal. Of all of Judas's treacherous deeds, this kiss was the blackest of them all. With this kiss, he seals the covenant of betrayal he had made with Jesus' enemies. And that kiss was the complete opposite of what a kiss actually should be. Not an expression of love, but of hatred. Judas chose this. Chose the kiss. To be the sign. Think about it. There's lots of things Judas could have done to identify Jesus to the men that came with him. But he chose a kiss. Why? Judas took cruel satisfaction in betraying Jesus this way. Remember when we looked at Luke's account of Judas going to the chief priests and bartering with them for 30 pieces of silver, making a covenant of betrayal with them. We saw what had gone on in Judas' heart leading up to that moment. How more and more he became dissatisfied and disillusioned and disappointed with Jesus. Because Jesus turned out to be a very different Messiah than Judas wanted. And now all of that hatred, all of that disappointment, all of that anger is funneled into this kiss that Judas gives to Jesus. It is an expression of all of his anger and hatred, his malice against the Lord he had come to hate. Hail, Master. Betrayal of the worst sort. You can well imagine how painful that kiss was for Jesus. Not only was it a great indignity to the Lord to have this traitor who still is playing the part as if he is one of his friends, as if he is still a disciple, this traitor come and kiss him. Not only a great indignity, but piercingly painful. Few things hurt more than betrayal. Especially when that betrayal is done under the pretense of love. Some of God's people know that personal experience. Some of you may know that pain, betrayal. Though Judas was not one of Jesus' own, Jesus knew that. Yet, Luke highlights the fact, one of the twelve... One of those who was closest to Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. This was piercingly painful for the Lord. It is part of his suffering. We see him already tasting some of the drops of that cup that he is reaching out to take. As he suffers that betrayal of Judas. Jesus replies though. In verse 48 of Luke 22. Jesus replies. To Judas, his greeting and his kiss. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus asks a simple but a pointed question. We are to understand by this question, Jesus, Jesus is exposing to Judas himself, The wickedness of his own deed. Judas, Jesus says. He uses his name. And that's powerful. 
Think of John's account of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene weeping outside of the tomb and Jesus appears to her and at first she doesn't know who he is. She thinks he's the gardener and then what does Jesus say? Mary. And at the hearing of her name, Mary comes to her senses. We have a similar thing here, but it wasn't a word of grace, but a word of judgment. Judas. Judas. Betrayest thou the Son of Man? Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. That was a name he often used for himself. You find it especially in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And that name is a messianic title. It's a messianic title derived from Daniel 7 verse 13. Whenever Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's not first of all emphasizing his humanity, though that is true, but the name Son of Man is first of all a title of the Messiah. What Jesus is saying here is, Judas, betrayest thou Messiah with a kiss? And you see immediately the thrust of that question. Jesus with this question is unmasking the hypocrite and exposing to Judas what his deed is. Forcing him to see it. It's no coincidence that after this, the only thing we read about Judas is when he goes Friday morning to the chief priests with remorse, not true repentance, but remorse, the sorrow of the world that worketh death, and he casts the money at their feet. He goes to the field that would be named, named Aseldama. There he hangs himself. Jesus' word here is a word of judgment upon Judas. But now, before we go on in the history There's application to be made drawing on this fulfillment of Judas' treachery. As horrible, as horrible as this treachery is, betrayal with a kiss, we must view it in light of all that is going on here. Jesus is going to the cross and everything that is taking place is taking place according to What the scriptures prophesied according to the will of God. And therefore it is for our salvation. Judas fulfilled his treachery and he is responsible for that. That horrible sin. He is guilty and responsible. And yet the sovereign God is using that for our salvation. Jesus is betrayed. That we might be saved. Jesus is betrayed. For the deliverance of traitors. Like you and me. Yes, traitors like you and me. You must remember, when we look at Judas in the Bible, Judas is not given to us to be like a pinata. You hang him up and you just beat him over and over again. How could Judas do that? I'm nothing like that. No, in Judas, our hearts are unveiled. 
In Judas, we see what lies in our sinful nature. In Judas, we see our own sin. Because our sin, at bottom, is covenant betrayal. It is covenant treachery. Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they turned their back on God. They became traitors. They made covenant with the devil. That's what sin is. And Jesus here is betrayed And treachery is fulfilled against him. And he suffers the pain of that for us. For us. That we, though traitors, that we may be saved and brought into the fellowship of God. Jesus was betrayed that he might save us who also betray him. He was betrayed that we might be received forever into God's favor and never forsaken of him. In this history, we see Jesus willingly suffering for our treachery that he might bear its punishment away. What a Savior we have. What a Savior who would submit to such painful suffering as betrayal for us. What a Savior. In Judas, we see a mirror of our own sinful nature. We see the horrific capacity that we have for evil. We see ourselves. But against that dark backdrop, we see who Jesus is all the more clearly. Jesus, the one who never betrays, Jesus, the one in whom there is no guile. The one who never deals treacherously. Jesus, who will never betray you. Never deal falsely with you. Even though you and I betray him. Jesus, the one who will never forsake. Though we forsake. We see that in what the disciples will do at the end of this event. When all of them scatter and forsake him. What a Savior we have and what comfort for sinners such as you and me. Beloved, whatever your sins are, however great they are, Jesus will never betray you. He suffered for you. He died for you. He paid for your sins. He will never betray. He will never forsake. That's a comfort for every believing sinner. And there's comfort here too for those who in their earthly way have felt that pain of betrayal. Whatever form it might be. Forsaken by a spouse. Forsaken by a wayward child. Abused by someone you thought you could trust. Left alone. Deceived by a family member or friend. And perhaps it was done under the pretense of love. Though people fail, though this world may fail you, though the institutions in this world may fail you, Jesus Christ will never fail you. He is a friend and a savior who will never turn his back on you. And therefore, you have a true refuge. Rock refuge. This savior. Jesus Christ.
That's the treachery fulfilled. But that's just the beginning of the history that is before us. Judas having marked Jesus with a kiss. It is now a decisive moment. What's going to happen? The cup that the Father wills Jesus to take and drink is before him. What will Jesus do? Will he disobey the Father's will and escape the cup? As the rest of the history reveals, no. The Lord Jesus displays the same humble submission to the will of the Father here as he did in his prayer in that hour of agony. Jesus goes forward and willingly surrenders himself into the hands of sinners. He willingly reaches out and takes the cup by his willing self-surrender. Now as we go through the history that is yet before us, there's three main events that take place after after Judas plants that treacherous kiss upon our Lord. So we're going to go through those three events and apply them now and see how they reveal the self-surrender of Jesus Christ for our salvation. First, there is an extraordinary event that only John records and we can't pass over it if we're going to get the full picture of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to turn now to John 18 and look at that. It appears that after Judas had kissed Jesus, he took his place with the band of armed men. And for whatever reason, these men did not immediately rush forward to seize Jesus. There was a pause. And in that moment of pause, Jesus steps forward and speaks. And that's what we have recorded here in John 18. John doesn't talk at all about Judas's kiss. But the events that John records logically fit right after Judas kissed the Lord. And so we're going to look at that now. John, 14, or John 18 verses 4 through 7. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell unto the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Very fascinating detail of the history comes out here. Jesus steps forward and he asks the band of armed men, who are you looking for? And they right away reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus speaks the words, I am he. You hear the significance of those words. That's not the first time Jesus had said something like that. Back in John 8 verse 58, Jesus had said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him because they understood very well what Jesus just said. I am the name Jehovah. 
And that's what we have here in John 18. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And in fact, the Greek text is even more emphatic. The word he isn't there. Jesus just says, I am. The word he is implied. I am. And as soon as Jesus speaks those words, utters the divine name Jehovah, what happens? The whole multitude goes backwards and falls on the ground. And the idea there is that they were all pushed back as if shoved by an invisible arm, pushed back and then fell forward as if they were bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who was a little while ago on his face in the garden, supplicating his father, now stands. I am he and all of his enemies that have come to arrest him. They are upon their faces in front of him. There's significance here. Several important truths come out in this event. First, Jesus reveals himself to be the Son of Man. The Son of God. He reveals his divinity and power. I am he. I am Jehovah. Jehovah's salvation. And he demonstrates that power. It is by divine power that with the word, I am, he lays flat. The whole multitude of armed men. So that they are forced to prostrate themselves before him. Mere utterance of the divine name lays flat his enemies. And that shows Jesus has the complete mastery of the whole situation. His enemies have no power over him. Their numbers, their swords, their staves, they are nothing to the Christ who is Jehovah's salvation. And the revelation then of Jesus' divinity and power make what he does next all the more amazing. I am he. Take me. I am he. Jehovah. And then he gives himself into their hands. I am he. And he reveals his divine power laying them flat on the ground and then Willingly surrenders himself to them. We see here, Jesus' enemies don't overpower him in Gethsemane. Jesus gives himself in submission to the will of his Father. He lays down his life willingly. He surrenders himself into their hands that the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God might be fulfilled and that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus has the whole mastery of the situation and yet he gives himself over. Some applications that arise from this. First, comfort for us as church. Look at the power of Christ displayed here. When from a human perspective he was utterly helpless, you might say. Jesus And a multitude of armed men come to take him in the garden. And yet Jesus has absolute power over all of his enemies. Does this not illustrate what our catechism teaches? That they cannot so much as move apart from his will. They can do nothing except that which is given them to do. 
This is the power of our Lord over our enemies. Absolute power. He is able to defend, preserve, and gather his church. And even when the sword of persecution lands a blow, and even when the wicked world seems to score a victory, even when we feel the pressure of tribulation, Christ has absolute power over the enemies. That's why Paul can say two seemingly contradictory things in the same breath in Romans 8 verses 36 and 37. Two contradictory things you might say. First, Paul says in Romans 8.36, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's God's people in the world. And yet Paul also says this, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because Christ has the power over our enemies. They cannot so much as move apart from him. And whenever they lay a blow upon his people, he turns it for our prophet. Behold the power of Christ in this text. And in connection with that, behold the power of his word. Jesus speaks and his powerful word lays his enemies out flat. Jesus still speaks. Even though he's ascended in heaven. He speaks his word. You ever tempted to think there's a sin in your life you're never going to overcome? It's impossible. Too great of a hold on you. The enemy's too powerful. Behold the power of Jesus' word that lays flat the enemy. Is there a trial? Can't endure? It's too much? Too powerful? Behold the power of the word of Christ. It can comfort and sustain you. The power of Christ displayed in this text is the power he still exercises through his word and through the preaching of that word and through the application of that word. But now a third application with regard to that power. This is the power Jesus brings to the cross. This is striking, isn't it? Though Jesus lays his enemies out flat, his purpose is not to escape arrest. He gives himself into their hands. He's not going to use this power to destroy these men here. He's going to take this almighty power to the cross of Calvary. And that's the amazing mystery of the cross. It is precisely by giving himself to his enemies that Christ conquers. By giving himself to the death of the cross. By his death on the cross. That's where he will lay his enemies out flat. Decisively and forevermore. Jesus takes this power to the cross. And on the cross he uses this divine power to sustain his human nature. And the bearing of the wrath of God against our sins. So that he drinks that cup to the very last drip. There is where he uses the divine power. 
to accomplish our salvation. And wonder of wonders, it is on the cross that the enemy is wiped out. Jesus here is giving a sign to his enemies. Even as he yields himself into their hands after he laid them out flat. This is what I will do. By giving myself over to you. But now the second event. We've looked at what happened right after, G- right after Judas kissed the Lord Jesus. There is the event recorded in John 18 verses 4 and 7. But going on in the history, we come in the second place to the disciples' misguided attempt to prevent Jesus' arrest. The disciples, not understanding what Jesus is doing, not understanding that it is his purpose to willingly surrender himself into the hands of sinners, the disciples see this as the moment to take action. This is the moment to rise up. This is it. It's time to fight. It's time to prevent our master from being taken. And that's verses 49 and 50 of Luke 22. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Lord, shall we smite with the sword, the disciples ask. But in the flurry of activity, as the band of men who have now gotten up, there you see the hardness of their hearts. Nothing but grace can soften the heart of such hard-hearted sinners. They get up after being knocked over and they rush Jesus. Well, the band of men is coming forward and the disciples say, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? But there's no time to wait for an answer. So impulsive Peter, John 18 identifies him, reaches beneath his long upper garment and draws a short sword and he strikes at one of the men leading the charge. Malchus, servant of the high priest. Malchus likely saw the blow coming and tried to dodge. And that combined with the untrained sword hand of a Galilean fisherman means the blow didn't land where it was meant to. And instead of taking off the head of the servant of the high priest, his right ear is cut off. And we might ask, what is Peter thinking here? What are the disciples thinking? There's a giant band of armed men, and they, with a couple of swords, are going to prevent the arrest of their Lord. What emboldened them to think they could fight this multitude? Well, Peter and the disciples likely misunderstood Jesus' demonstration of divine power. They had just seen Jesus lay out flat the whole multitude. And they misinterpreted it as, this is the time to fight. This maybe is the time that Jesus is at last going to defeat his enemies. He's going to establish the kingdom of Israel. This is it. So Peter pulls out his sword ready to fight. What the disciples, what Peter didn't grasp, is that Jesus wasn't going to resist. Peter's zeal is not according to knowledge. He loved his Lord. He wanted to protect his Lord, but this zeal was not according to knowledge. Jesus was surrendering himself into the hands of his enemies, and they didn't see it. Well, Jesus quickly intervenes because the situation was getting out of control. You can 
Imagine what's going to happen next. The disciples draw swords. How will the armed multitude respond to that? They're going to draw their swords, which are many more swords. Peter just gave ample reason to the band of men to draw their swords and perhaps kill the whole group of Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus quickly intervenes and he speaks up in verse 51 of the text. Jesus answered and said, answered there means he he responds to this whole situation that is quickly developed. Suffer ye thus far. Then he touches Malchus' ear and heals him. Suffer ye thus far. There's really two ideas in that expression of Jesus. First place, directed to his disciples, it means stop. Let them take me. Suffer this to happen. Jesus reveals to his disciples, it is my purpose to surrender myself into their hands. But another part of the meaning of the expression is it's a word to the charging band who had perhaps drawn their swords, stop, suffer me thus far. Jesus then touches Melchus's ear and heals him, undoing the wrong that Peter had done, and thereby likely preventing the slaughter of his disciples. Jesus touches Melchus's ear and heals him. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he rebukes them. And that's recorded in Matthew 26, verse 52. Then Jesus said unto them, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Here Jesus makes clear to his disciples, I don't need your sword. He would go on to say in Matthew, I could call upon my Father and he would presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion for each of you and more. If I needed it. I don't need your sword. Put it back in its sheath. But more than that, Jesus is telling his disciples, the sword doesn't advance my cause. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not come by the sword. And my kingdom is not defended or built through the use of the sword. Put up thy sword. The sword has no place here. No place at all. John 18 verse 11 reveals a little more that Jesus said to Peter and the disciples. John 18, verse 11, Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Here there's more. Jesus is not only saying, The sword is not the tool by which my kingdom is advanced. But Jesus is saying, Peter, Your sword stands opposed to me and God's purposes and my kingdom. Not only do I not need your sword, but your sword is working against me. The Father has given me a cup. Shall I not drink it? The disciples didn't understand that the sword 
Peter's sword was in conflict with the very work of God and the very work that Jesus as the Messiah was going forward to do. By attempting to prevent the arrest of Jesus, they were actually putting themselves in the way of Jesus performing the work of salvation. Peter's sword actually served Satan's cause. Put up thy sword. The cup that is before me, I must drink it. And the lesson that Jesus taught to his disciples here is a lesson for us. The sword. The church must not take up the sword. Believers must not take up the sword. There is only one institution in the world to which God has given the sword and the power to use the sword, and that's the civil government. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is spiritual, and it is advanced by spiritual means, not the sword. Never should the church be built using the sword, or defended using the sword, or force, or violence, or the tools and tactics of the world. True it is, the church is embroiled in warfare, but it is a spiritual warfare. Therefore, as Paul says, we war not after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The only sword the disciple of Jesus wields is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When the church, or if believers, take up the sword, force, violence, the tools and tactics of the world, though they may use those things They think in the service of Christ, they actually oppose the cause of Christ. Take not the sword, but let us follow in the footsteps of our humble Savior, who surrendered himself, suffered evil, and rendered not evil in return, endured persecution. That's how Christ fought. And that's how his people fight too. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Jesus conquered through that suffering. Let us follow him. It's a beautiful quote from an ancient church father named Lactantius. The quote is this. Religion cannot be forced. And it should be defended. Not by killing. But by dying. That's Jesus' way. That should be the way of the church. Following the footsteps of our suffering Savior. But now third, the band seizes Jesus and the disciples scatter. That's the third and last event in the history before us. Jesus speaks again to the multitude, now in the last two verses of our text, 52 and 53. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then in the first part of verse 54 you read, Then took they him. Jesus' words here, he exposes the folly and the wickedness 
of his soon-to-be captors. Why do they come out with such force? As if Jesus was a public enemy, a thief, needing to be arrested by armed men. After all, Jesus says, I was daily with you in the temple, and yet ye stretched forth no hands against me. And with that, Jesus points out their wickedness, why they are doing this under the cover of darkness. They had no just accusation. They had no just cause against the Lord Jesus. They would not do it in open daylight because they knew their work was a work of darkness. But their hearts were hard. They took him. And as they bound Jesus to take him to the high priest, the disciples scattered. As Jesus had prophesied they would. Matthew 26 verse 56, But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They were offended. They stumbled. They were offended when they realized that Jesus was giving himself over into the hands of his enemies. That he did not intend to defend himself. And they were scandalized by that. It was contrary to all their desire, contrary to all logical human reasoning in their minds. Jesus is going to give himself over. He has divine power, and yet he's giving himself over. He can call angels, but he's not going to. He won't even let us use the sword to defend him. They were offended. And in fear, despair, disappointment, and a whole whirlwind of other emotions, like sheep they were scattered as the shepherd was bound. They forsook him. How that must have stung. Stung the Lord Jesus Stung even more than Judas's betrayal. Now he's alone. Entirely alone. As he must be. For he goes to the cross alone. There alone to bear the sins of many. To drink the cup alone. But now finally we see that... This hour was divinely, sovereignly appointed. Jesus calls our attention to that in his last words, the end of verse 53, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And the thing we need to see about this statement of Jesus is that though on the surface, it seems like a very fearful statement, as if evil is having its day now, it is in fact A declaration of victory. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus speaks to his enemies. He identifies them with the power of darkness. For after all, they are Satan's agents. They are serving the powers of darkness. Satan, his hosts, the principle of sin, the whole world system, all that is opposed to God All the spiritual powers of darkness are here marshaled against the Christ of God. And these men are the willing agents of the powers of darkness. This is your hour, Jesus says. The hour in which evil is given to carry out its designs. And all of the wickedness in their hearts comes out. And the heinous deed they had plotted for so long against the Christ, they carry forth. It is the hour in which the serpent bruises the heel of the seed of the woman. 
This is your hour. Your hour. Not in the sense that the powers of darkness have free reign. Or that they are so untethered that they overcome the purpose of God. Oh no, this is your hour, powers of darkness. Only in the sense that Satan had his hour in the life of Job. He had his hour as God gave it to him. And he could go not an inch beyond what God gave him to do. This is your hour. An hour sovereignly appointed by God. After all, that's what an hour is. It's a defined period of time. It has its beginning. It has its end. This is your hour that God has given to you. A little season of apparent victory. In which the powers of darkness would in fact be defeated. This is your hour over which God, in fact, has absolute sovereignty. Tried though they did, the powers of darkness could not take Jesus before this time. Because the hour had not come. And now the the powers of darkness, even as they bind the Christ, they themselves are bound by God. And even as they do their wicked will, they, despite themselves, are fulfilling the counsel of God. His sovereign will. In their hour, the powers of darkness served God and our salvation. And with their own wicked hands, they worked their own defeat. This is your hour. That's it. Just an hour. Just a little season. Before the great day of Christ. A sovereignly appointed hour. In reality. This hour was God's hour. And it was Jesus hour. An hour not of evil's triumph. But of Christ's triumph. An hour that. Though the seed. Of the woman. Had his heel bruised. In that dark hour. He. Crush the head of the serpent. And the wonderful comfort that comes out of this. God works all things. For the good and salvation of his people. And this is one of the wonders of that truth. That in the hour of the power of darkness. In that hour. Darkness is defeated. In the hour of the power of darkness. There is evil's defeat. When evil seems to be ascendant. It is at that moment that it is falling. God glorifies and magnifies himself in this way. That he gives evil its hour. So that in that hour. He might destroy and conquer evil. God turns the hour of evil to the profit of his people and how history shows that but above all what's going to come in the passion week history shows that it's three hours of darkness and the cross center the hour of the powers of darkness who triumphed not the powers of darkness the Christ of God so it always is 
so it will be at the end of this age. When evil will again have its hour with the rise of Antichrist and the worldwide anti-Christian kingdom, evil will have its hour. And then Christ comes. Out of that hour of darkness comes the victory of the church. And so take comfort, people of God. Take comfort and fear not the power of darkness. Fear not the hour of the power of darkness. It is not their hour. It is Christ's hour. And in it, through it, He brings victory. Amen. Faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for this word, this portion of the Passion Week history in which we see our Lord Jesus as he surrenders himself into the hands of his enemies, yet in that hour of darkness, accomplishing our salvation. May this word comfort our hearts and lead us not to fear any of our enemies, for Christ has conquered and won the battle, and in him we have the victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.